Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity that getting into your word uh, represents for us, Lord. We thank you for the things that you want to teach us, Lord, and the, uh, Lord, the desire that you have for us to be drawn closer to you, Lord. And as a result, we thank you for the revelation that you give us, Lord, the understanding of who you are and what you want to do in our lives and the things you want to communicate, Lord. And so I just pray, God, that the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and not mine, and that, Father, you just be glorified in and through all the communication that takes place, Lord. So, Father, we love you, God. We thank you. We pray that you would just go before us now as we dig into uh, just more of you and learning about you, Lord. Um, Go before us now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in chapter 5. Let's go right there. We'll jump right into verse 1 of chapter 5. And it says this. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written... And on the backside, sealed with seven, uh, a book written within, and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, um, the King James will say book. Uh, really, the word here should be scroll. Um, back then, there really weren't any books, right? So uh, John would have identified with the phrase scroll. And certainly, I think that that's probably what he was referring to. Isn't that funny? I just contradicted myself. Certainly, that's probably what he was referring to. No, certainly, that's what he was referring to. And um, it is interesting because for those of you guys don't, uh, for those of you guys that don't know how scrolls worked, everybody uh, sort of thinks that when you have a scroll, the only way scrolls worked is you took them and you rolled them open. You know, you rolled them open the whole way, and um, that was sort of how they were read. And certainly, that's not kind of how that's read. It's not how that works. The way it works is when you open up a scroll. Um, uh, let's take uh, the book of Revelation that we're in, okay? When, Rev- when Revelation was in its original form, that scroll very likely, very, very likely was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 feet long, right? So there's no way you could open a scroll like that, you know, that's 20 feet long and say, okay, well, I'm going to read the book of Revelation and, you know, just you'd have to have a big room to be able to do that on, right? Or a massive table. So the way these scrolls would actually be read is uh, think of it as you sort of have a table, you've got the handles on the scroll, right? What you would do is you would open it up, you know, to where there was about a foot, in your view, right? And then you would roll both ends as you would sort of go through. You guys follow what I'm talking about? You kind of sort of roll both ends as you were reading it. So it was kind of like a reel that was kind of going forth. And sort of, that's sort of the way scrolls work. And by the way, depending on what background you were, uh, what, what background you came from, if you have a certain level of affluence, you were actually able to afford these little mechanisms. They didn't have bearings or anything. This was before those days. But you were able to afford these mechanisms that kind of held the handles of the scroll for you so all you had to do was turn the handles and you were just able to just read right there and of course many places like synagogues and so on and so forth you saw things like this and so this is what we were talking about so this would have been a scroll that uh, would have been put together but it was sealed and it had seven seals right and um, John is basically saying that the scroll that he saw it looked like uh, things were being written on both sides of the paper right so it wasn't just one side where um, in, in most scrolls that's kind of how it would look you would typically have uh, something that would be written on one side and then of course you wouldn't go out and buy another piece of parchment oftentimes you would find yourself writing on the other side uh, not oftentimes but in some cases because that stuff was hard to come by and so it wasn't like the the luxury that we have today where you can go buy a, a, a big old pad of paper and just write away till your heart's content or you know we have paper in just total abundance that was not the case back then that was not something that was very very common so he sees this scroll he sees it uh, as 
having seven seals. So the idea here, the picture that you get with these seals is you can't open the scroll, right? The scroll is shut. And it's shut because it's sealed with seven seals that prohibit from, for, prohibit it from actually being open to read what's inside the scroll. And so it says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book or the scroll and to loose the seals thereof? And so this is kind of interesting. There's an angel who is obviously very powerful and loud. And the angel is yelling out, who is worthy to be able to open the scroll? Which is a very important question. This wasn't like some rhetorical question. This wasn't like a question that was like, hey, who wants to do this? You know, it wasn't kind of like that kind of, it was one of these things where it was like, hey, it appears as though there is nobody who is capable and, and not necessarily capable. There's nobody who is worthy. No one had had has the worthiness to be able to open this scroll. Now, this is a kind of an interesting problem that this presents because this was the type of scroll that obviously had information in it that was pertinent. As we're about to find out when the scrolls, when the seals on the scrolls are open and you begin to find out what's in the scroll, you begin to realize that the information within the scroll is pretty much the information of what's going to happen in the future upon the earth, right? And there are some people that actually refer to this scroll as the title deed of the earth. I'm not necessarily sure I ascribe to that view. I know it's one of the views that Pastor Chuck has exhibited concerning this particular passage, um, I actually think that it's more likely that the scroll contains, uh, the significance of the scroll is that it contains information concerning what's going to happen with the future of the redemption of mankind through the process that we understand as the Great Tribulation and what happens with God's impending judgment. So certainly the ability to open the scroll, there still has to be a level of worthiness to open it, right? And apparently, as he's asking this question, that means there must be nobody that's in a position to be able to open the scroll. The scroll is incapable, uh, not, there's no one that's, a, uh, that's worthy enough to be able to open it, and it appears as though there isn't anybody who's capable of opening it, right? And it says, i got to break myself of that habit of saying capable. Worthy is the, is the correct word, right? Anybody can open a scroll. The picture is, is who is worthy of being able to do it. That's the word that we've got to sort of uh, keep in mind and kind of swallow up. It's just an important uh, distinction that I think we need to make. So it says in verse 3, it says, And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth. And when he says under the earth, he's talking about those that have actually died, right? Um, And so none of the saints, none of the people who have died and are in heaven, uh, none of the people that are on the earth can do it, and none of the people that are in heaven can do it, right? So the saints can't do it, right? And the people that are still on earth can't do it. So uh, nobody can do it. They were, they were, uh, no one was able to open the book, neither to look therein. Now, the reason why they were not able to open the book is because they were not worthy to open the book, right? If you're not worthy to open the book, you don't have the ability to open it because you're not worthy to be able to do it. Very interesting picture that we see here. And look what it says. It says, And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look therein. So basically the the translation here is I convulsly wept. I mean, I wept with, with, with this great, I just was convulsing in my weeping. I was crying profusely. And, and the question has to lend itself to say, why in the world would John weep so bad? Now we know that John is weeping because nobody is able to open the book, right? That nobody's able to open the scroll. Let's just say that. No one's able to, to, to break open the seals. They don't have the ability. And why is it that that would cause John to weep so convulsively or to weep so seriously? And I believe that the reason why it's causing John to weep so seriously is because he's beginning to realize that if there's nobody that's worthy or capable of opening this book, then the story of the redemption of mankind cannot be told, which, is the, which means there's a potential that the story of the redemption of mankind doesn't, isn't 
isn't going to happen. It's gone. It's history, right? And this is the thing that people don't get when it comes to the rapture and it comes to everything that goes on after the rapture. Everybody thinks of, oh my gosh, I just don't want to be left behind. And if you're like me, you think of the old school hippie movie, you know, The Thief in the Night, you know, where they're at the very end of the movie, they're playing that spooky song where it says, you've been left behind. And they got the big bell bottoms on and the long hair and you've been left behind. You've been, and, oh my God, that's so scary. And that word, those words are just ringing in your head. If you haven't watched Thief in the Night, you can look at it on YouTube. You should watch it. It's interesting. It'll give you a good scare if you don't know the Lord. It really will. It'll freak you out. But, you know, you listen to it and I just, in my mind, my thought process is, is, is it's just this sort of like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. I'm scared of the end of the world. I'm scared of the fact that judgment is going to come and I'm scared of all that stuff. But what people don't realize is the reason why the rapture and the story of the tribulation that follows after that is so unbelievably significant, is so important, is so powerful, is so unique, is because it literally is the story of the sequence associated with God redeeming mankind to its entirety. It gives a sense of permanence to the redemption of mankind. Listen, not not only did the cross of Jesus Christ become the permanent solution for the redemption of mankind, we certainly know that, right? We know that it was, we got our salvation from the cross of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else besides what happened on that cross, right? Jesus even said it. He said, Tetelestai. We know. He meant it's finished. There's nothing else to the can't. There's nothing you add to it. You can't take it away, take anything away from it. Salvation comes from what happened on the cross. We know that. Salvation comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only the crucifixion and the judgment, but we know the resurrection. And there's nothing else to add to that. Nothing, right? But... The story of the completion of the redemption of mankind is, is, is a significant story and it must be one that must come to its completion because if Jesus Christ dying on the cross and resurrecting is, it was just the end of the story, well then it really wouldn't mean as much as or a whole lot of what the, what, what God really intended because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the end all and the say all. Yes, of course. But remember, even after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is still a sinful earth earth and sinful man living on a sinful earth living on a fallen earth that's completely destroyed but the story of revelation brings us to that place where it's all over where it's all completed and it's all finished the the, the picture of it's the idea that when you go through the story of the great tribulation and you get to the very end and you go through the story of the millennial reign and what happens after that millennial reign it's the story that god gives to us to remind us that he is still not finished with the work that's going on on this earth in other words there's going to come a point in time where he is going to redeem it all he's going to take control of it all and then he's going to destroy it all and he's going to create something new for us right there is something special about that right there's something very exciting about that process that there's a there's an end of a story here that is one that it's an it's a it's a fairy tale ending it's one of the greatest endings that well it is it is the absolute greatest ending that any man could ever imagine or think of by the way there were people in the old testament that understood this we know that right there were prophets in the old testament that understood this let's go to daniel chapter 9 for just a second and i think it's appropriate because going through daniel chapter 9 is going to be able to give you a little bit of history as in to what I'm talking about with respect to this story that would be completed. Let's go over there for just a second. And if you don't know where to find Daniel, just keep thumbing through the Bible and you'll get lucky. You'll, you'll actually find... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, 
Um, it's always so funny when I tell people, well, it's right after this book or it's right after that book. Well, if they don't know where Daniel is, they probably don't know where the book before it is. But uh, if you are thumbing around, it's right after Ezekiel. If you go into Daniel, you go to chapter 9. This is the story where Daniel goes to pray to the Lord and wants to know what to do after he, he realizes that, you know, the, the amount of time where they've been away from, uh, from Israel has, or the way they've been away from Judah has expired and they're ready to go back into Judah and restore and rebuild the temple and so on and so forth and restore and rebuild the city and so on and so forth. He realizes it's time. So he goes to the Lord and he prays to God. God, what do we do? What happens? What shall we do? What's the next step? What do we do to, to start this process? What do we do to finish this? And of course, we know the whole story we know that God came down and spoke to him and 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 actually told him you know exactly uh, what was going to happen and part of what God told him it starts here in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9 and this becomes significant for of course this becomes significant for the book of Revelation right it says in chapter uh, 9 verse 24 it says this it says 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to do several things, right? There are 70 weeks. Now, when we talk about 70 weeks, what we are actually talking about is we are talking about years, right? Now, of these of these weeks that have gone on, right? 69 of the 70 weeks have already been accomplished. I'm sure you guys know that. You guys have been sitting under my teaching for any amount of time. You know that 69 of those weeks, 473 years has already gone by. Okay, so those that time has already been accounted for. We're really particularly concerned of the 70th week, which has not happened yet. By the way, the 70th week, according to Daniel, of the 70th week of Daniel is what we're beginning to read about in Revelation, right? It has not happened yet, okay? But this is what God wants to accomplish with the 70 weeks that are determined upon Daniel's people, okay? 70 weeks, this is what he wants to accomplish. Number, The one thing he wants to do is finish the transgression, right? To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and anoint the most holy. Well, of course, we know that he finished the transgression, right? To make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. We know that all of those things have happened. Those all have happened, why? Through what? Through Jesus Christ, right? This is when he's cut off. This is when the Bible says that the Messiah will be cut off. Right? Know what he says in, if we skip past, if we skip to verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we know that that happened in Nehemiah chapter 2, right? It says, um, Unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off. The Messiah was cut off at that point, right? In the 69 weeks, the 473 years, which brings you, if you take that and you multiply that times 360 days, which you would go by the Babylonian calendar, right? That brings you to 178,880 days, which then in essence takes you to the very day that Jesus walks in in the triumphal entry, right, into Jerusalem, and he's cut off later that week. Right? In other words, he's crucified. So that has been accomplished. The prince was cut off here. It says, And the people of the prince that shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war and desolations are determined. And of course, we know that this was a, a discussion concerning uh, Titus when Titus came in in 70 AD and destroyed everything, right? He destroyed the temple and, and actually completely destroyed it. But look in verse 27, it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. This is the 70 
70th week, right? This is the week that hasn't happened yet, right? And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of the abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the uh, the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So this is the picture that we get from Daniel that we basically know in the middle of this three and a half year period, the last week of Daniel, the last seven years that he's talking about, this Antichrist that we know of is going to set himself up in the temple and he's going to demand to be worshipped and that is going to be an abomination that makes desolate, right? And that's when the Jews are going to start getting much more heavily persecuted than they were. And it's just a heavy picture that we begin to develop and we begin to understand concerning the, the remainder of the story. So... John, of course, being a Bible student of God's word, John understanding what the word of God says and knows the remaining of the, of the remainder of that story, he's already witnessed with his own eyes. He has witnessed all the 69 weeks of Daniel. He's witnessed everything that's happened in the first 69 weeks of Daniel. And what he's witnessing in heaven, this future event, what he's about to witness is what? He's about to witness the 70th week of Daniel. So when the question goes forth, hey, what in the world is going on? You know, who is worthy to open the scroll? And, and, and the voice in heaven says, nobody's worthy to open the scroll. There isn't anybody that's worthy to open the scroll. You have to understand, he's convulsing, he's weeping. Why? Because this would mean, if nobody could open up the scroll, this would mean that the 70th week of Daniel that's being spoken of here cannot be told. The story cannot be told. The account of what was happening in the 70th week of Daniel could not happen. Of course John would weep convulsively. Why? Because there's all kinds of emotions probably going through his head right now did i misunderstand god's word did it did god make a mistake when he said what he said you know there's all kinds of uh, thoughts there's, there's a massive thought process that's going through his mind he's not understanding why he's thinking what he's thinking he just doesn't get it he's he's confused he's hurt he's scared there's all kinds of emotions that's going through his head he's freaking out he's just wondering man if nobody's worthy to open the scroll then there, there, there can't be anything there now this is by the way the mindset of a man who would weep convulsively while realizing that there's nobody worthy to open the scroll or open the scroll is the mindset of a man who's been studying the bible it's a mindset of a man who understands the prophets it's a mindset of the man who really understands the picture of what's supposed to be going on in the last days and as he's doing this weeping and as he's uh, you know convulsing like this and he's as he's you know in essence losing his marbles just freaked out over the whole thing you have to understand there's a whole gamut of emotions but here's the dangerous thing about somebody who ends up being in that position sometimes you miss a certain variable right there's a certain picture that you miss and the variable that he missed is the variable concerning Jesus Christ he he forgot about the fact that yeah there is some Somebody that's worthy to open that scroll it's jesus christ and the story of christ even as it's told by daniel or isaiah or many of the prophets that john studied even the words of christ even the story of christ as john told it in the gospel of john makes it very clear that christ is the key to the redemption of mankind so if christ is the key to the redemption of mankind in the story of their own personal salvation, wouldn't he also be the key to the story of redemption of mankind as a whole when we see the completion of the, of the history of the world, when we see the ending of the world and we begin to see God literally create for us a new heavens and the new earth? Of course, the Messiah is at the center of it. Jesus Christ is the key to it all, right? So the idea is that he's crying and he's weeping because he's watched something significant. He's watched something affect him dramatically. He's watched something uh, just massively impacting to him. And, and it really hit him hard, right? And it says in verse 5, 
Oh, that was an earful, wasn't it? Okay, sorry. And it says in verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, this is interesting. There is a, uh, there, there's, a there's a few idioms that's actually being used here, right? Um, obviously, the first idiom is going to be lion, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, right? The second idiom that we see here is the root of David, right? And another one, the lamb, referring to, to these phrases. Now, they're all significant and they all mean something, right? When we say the lion of the tribe of Judah, of course, that brings us all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. And you can go back to Genesis 49 and read the story of what Genesis chapter 49 says. If you remember at the very end of 49, when, when Abraham is, or I mean, uh, <laughs> when Jacob is, is, is blessing or cursing his sons, not really cursing, but is proclaiming uh, things upon their lives as he's beginning to do this. Yeah, okay, we'll wait for the music to stop. It's going, okay, there we go. All right, so. <laughs> No, I was wondering where it was coming from. I'm like, am I hearing things? Is something going through the speaker? What's going on? No, no, no. Well, you just snitched on yourself. You don't have to say that. I just, I, <laughs> I thought it was a sound guy. Anyway, so, <laughs> so let's talk about what he refers to. The line of the tribe of Judah. Well, you go back to that time where proclamations are made concerning Judah. You know, he's referred to as the whelp. You know, the, the, that whole picture of the whelp and the lion. And the picture is, is that Jesus Christ is the, is the deliverer, the mighty deliverer, right? He's the one who is the defender, um, the, the, the one he was, and of course we know that he's referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah, literally the, 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 the head, you know, the, the, it, the picture is it, there's mighty force and there's mighty power, he's coming in to take care of it, but it is interesting, he also is referred to as the root of David, right, the root of David is, a, is, is such a, an interesting picture that we get here, because when we talk about the root of David, uh, the, 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 the idea is, is that this is the one that was promised to David back in the day, right? We've talked about this, right? We've, we've talked about this, the history of David, where David, uh, you know, he's the king finally, after Saul goes bye-bye, he's the king and he's living in this lush palace, and David says, I can't believe I'm listening, I'm living in this beautiful home, but I, God still lives in a tent, right? Not really understanding the nature of God, God doesn't live in any tent, but you get the idea, right? He's, I don't want God to have a tabernacle, let's build him a temple, and so, uh, you know, he he says that to the prophet and the prophet says to him, hey, ride on, David, this is good. God will be pleased with this. And of course, the Lord wakes up the prophet in the middle of the night and goes, hey, knucklehead, did I tell you to tell you that to David? I didn't say that to David. A little bit of liberty with what, you know, I didn't tell you to say, to say that to David. And so, of course, we know that um, uh, the Lord goes back to David and says, look, David, you can't do this because your hands are bloody. There's no way that you can build this temple. I'm not, you can't build me a house. But you know what, David? I'm going to build you a house. And what he says is he says, everybody that comes from your, from your, uh, your line, okay, they are going to rule perpetually. They are going to rule and reign perpetually. In other words, you will have a dynasty that will never die and actually he was right because every single king that went down the line in the you know of judah were all descendants of david there wasn't one that wasn't a descendant and the last remaining king the last remaining king of king david's line was who jesus christ he was the one he was the last remaining king, the last remaining ruler of Judah, which he's the everlasting king. He's the king of king, you know, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the, and, and the picture is, is he's the ruler. He's the king. That's the idea. That's the picture. He's the king of Judah. And so that's what he's referred to as here. And that is certainly, uh, that is certainly the Lord Jesus Christ, right? 
And then looking at this, I mean, the, the, it's just beautiful. He says, unto me, weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, right, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And then here's where we get into the language of the lamb, right? And it says, and behold, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders, which we've already talked about extensively, the description of this when we went over chapter four, as you might remember, right? It says, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes which are seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth so the idea of the seven horns the horns are or power right it's indicative of power seven is the is the number we kind of get this idea of this perfection this number of completion and perfection this idea where we get the sequence of seven eight but the idea is the the, the picture is he is perfectly powerful he is completely completely powerful right that's the idea and and so that's what the horn stood for the eyes is he's all watching right he sees everything he's everywhere he, he sees everything he, he knows everything this is the picture but it is interesting i think the thing that we should focus on is this third idiom that we see here the use of the term lamb and it is interesting because you know that that was what was necessary for salvation if you go back to the time of the passover when god is getting ready to kill the firstborn of everybody in the land including the firstborn of the israelites what does he tell the israelites to not be in order for the firstborn to not be killed he makes this statement he says hey look this is what you got to do look he says go kill the perfect lamb don't find the one that's got all kinds of pus all over it and got a broken leg and all that kind of stuff go find the perfect one the, the best one you have you need to kill that lamb you need to take the blood of that lamb and you need to put that blood on the doorpost of your house right and anybody who's living inside that house when the death angel comes by he's going to pass over your house if you know if they see the blood on the doorpost of the house of course the, it, it, the blood had to come from a perfect lamb otherwise the people in the house would still die and so that's why it was called the passover because the angel passed over those houses that's why they celebrate the feast of the passover and it is interesting where jesus died during the week of the passover right and so um, Jesus, who he himself is referred to as the perfect lamb of God, right? The one that's without flaw and blemish, the one who'd never sinned. He never sinned a day in his life. He never sinned a second in his life. He was perfect, right? His perfect blood was shed on the cross. And the Bible says that his blood is now applied to the doorposts of our heart. So that now when death comes over, the, the, the you know, permanent death, the death of hell comes, comes our way, it passes over us because we have the blood of Jesus protecting our hearts. See, this is the picture. So he's referred to as the lamb. And so he sees this lamb as though it had been slain. By the way, this sort of brings some, some interesting pictures my way. This is, this is John who's, he's crying, he's emotional. They reveal the one who's worthy of doing it. Well, why is he worthy of opening the scroll? Why is it that Christ is the only one worthy of opening the scroll? Nobody else is worthy of opening the scroll. Not a single person, including the one who's holding the scroll, presumably the father. There's nobody who's capable of opening the scroll except jesus christ why because jesus christ is the one who went through the process of judgment that he may redeem us he's the redeemer there's no one else that could open it there's nobody else that fits it you can't have buddha open that scroll buddha probably anyway i'm not even gonna go there you can't have anybody open up that scroll you can't the only person that can open up that scroll is jesus christ he's the only one He's the only one. There's no, why? Because he is the one who through his actions redeemed all of mankind. He's the one that has the authority to redeem mankind, right? 
I ask this question to Bible college students and they get angry. I mean, they get ticked when I ask them this question because most of the time they can't answer it correctly and because they can't answer it correctly, it makes them even more angry because they're frustrated because they think they should answer it and it's, they, they think it's like a trick question, but the problem is it's just a simple reflection of the fact that most of them have never been taught correctly through the scriptures. And the question that I would ask them, and it's a very common one, is what gives Jesus Christ the authority to forgive you of your sins? Well, he's God! Sorry, not enough. Does not give him enough authority to forgive you. And it's so cool that you guys are like, you don't have a confused look on your face. That means you've been sitting here long enough to be taught. You understand. Jesus just didn't have the ability to just speak out of his mouth and say, you're forgiven. Why do you think the Pharisees lost their minds when they heard somebody say something like that? Why do you think they lost their minds when Jesus would say your sins are forgiven? Because nobody, not even God, would have the authority to say you're forgiven just out of the blue. As a matter of fact, we know that God the Father out of the blue just didn't have the authority to say your sins are forgiven. What bought the authority, what gave him the authority to be able to say your sins are forgiven is the sacrifice that was made by the Son. Think of it this way. He never did anything evil, ever. Most people don't understand that concept. Not the concept that he never did anything evil, but the concept that he needed an authority to be able. He, there's a certain authority, there's a certain credential that you have to have to be able to forgive sins. And not one person in the history of the world has ever condemned that credential except Jesus Christ. Why? Because if you are, theoretically, if you're going to have the authority to forgive sins, several things have to happen. Number one, you first have to live a life that's perfect. There's not a single person in world history, not a single individual in world history, not one, not one, that's ever been able to live a life perfectly without sin. Not one. They all make mistakes. They all mess up. They all just completely, there's a little off button. It kind of helps. A little off button. It'll help you. <laughs> so what, what ends up happening, you, you, you think about this. You, th you think about the picture. There's only been one. Not a single person. Not anybody. Anybody on the face of the earth. Not anybody that's been able to live a life perfectly. By the way, if you don't believe me, just think of what you've done today. Think of the life you lived just today. Think of the life you lived in the last hour. Have you had an angry thought? Have you been upset? Have you been frustrated? Have you, know, have you said things that maybe you shouldn't have said in your mind or in your heart? Have you done things in your mind and in your heart? Has your thought life wandered in a certain way? Has something happened where you've been irritated by somebody and you've had a bad... Listen, you sinned. Every single one of us. There isn't a single person on the face of the earth that is free from sin except one person that's lived and that's Jesus Christ. That's why I never get surprised when people come up to me. And it's funny, they expect me to react. They expect me to go, oh, you know, they come, oh, Pastor James, you'll never under, you'll never believe I, I sinned. I did this the other day, you know. Oh, I'm so ashamed, you know. I have people that turn in their ministry applications sometimes. They go in and hand it into me, and they're looking down at the floor because they had to write certain things. That, they had to disclose certain things that they've done in their life, you know, in the ministry application. You know, well, have you ever, you know, are you struggling with any kind of habitual sin right now? And these are questions we ask. Really, they're more a tool for us to be able to minister to the person as they're filling these things out. It's not to, it's not to get them all, you know, all riled up or to make them go through penance or anything like that. It, it's just because we really, it's a tool that gives us the ability to minister to them, see where they're at, and, you know, we're going to put you in front ministering the people who want to know a little bit about you but they always come into me and they they always just give me this and they they they, they want to explain to me before i even read before you read it man i just got to explain i'm just so ashamed i'm so sorry that i wrote this down please don't think any less of me whatever and i oftentimes haven't done it in a while because i haven't had it happen in a while i oftentimes look at them and i go you are so you should be so ashamed of yourself how embarrassing you know and then they get all emotional no 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 no, no 
I'm joking, I'm joking, you know. You're not going to write anything in this application that's going to surprise me or freak me out or trip me out. Why? Because you're a human being. All human beings are imperfect. But for whatever reason, we like to draw this picture that we're perfect people, don't we? I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like one of the common things that we do. We, we, we sort of like to make ourselves look like something we really aren't and never were, you know? It's one of my favorite things to do when people invite me to their house. Although lately, since I've been saying this story, most people don't invite me to their house anymore. But you know, they come invite me to their house and what I like to do, and it's, it's kind of a, it's like my thing. What I like to do is before I knock on the door or anything, I'll just sit and I'll listen. I'll put my ear to the door for just a minute and I just listen to what's going on. And it will blow your mind how many times I'm hearing all kinds of crazy things going on in the house. I told you to shut your bleep, 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 bleep. You did your bleep, bleep, bleep. They're just, and they're, they're calling out their mother 14 different times and they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're saying the, the name of Jesus a bunch of times and they're, you know, they're, they're saying all kinds of crazy things and then I always like it. It's just, it's just, it's my, it's the funnest thing to do and most of the time it's good when they have a doorbell instead of knocking because sometimes knocking on the door kind of drowns out what they're doing but you ring the doorbell and you, you hear this and you hear this all of a sudden it goes from to this, to this, they just get quiet. They just, all of a sudden they just go quiet. They just, that's it. They're just quiet. And then about two seconds go by and then you hear them say, oh, my God, that's Pastor James. He's here a little bit early. Okay, get this right. Don't say anything. This is we just want to You know that's what's going on. They're going back and forth or whatever. Then they open the door and, you know, mind you, 30 seconds ago they were calling out mothers and they were saying crazy things and blank, blank this and blank, blank that and, you know, all kinds of crazy words and all that stuff. And 30 seconds later they managed to go from that to, oh, praise the Lord. You know, we were just praying. You caught us in the middle of a prayer meeting. Would you like to join us for a word of prayer, Pastor James? And, you know, I mean, this is the kind of baloney that people do, right? Right? I mean, this is, this is the way it is. Or this is, but this is one of my favorite things. This is like, this is one of the things that just, my mom used to do this all the time. My, my sister-in-law does this. My wife is infamous for this. We all do this, right? Someone's about to come over the house and my wife's like, let's just put, oh, we, the house does not look clean enough. It's just messy. And I got to take care of this. I got to take care of that. I'm like, baby, it's all good. Don't worry. No, 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 no. And the house could be perfect looking. And, and someone, I'm so sorry. I'm so, the house is such a mess. I do it. You know, because we want people to think something differently from what we really are. Why? Because we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all make mistakes. We're all imperfect, right? Sometimes, mind I say, sometimes we leave laundry on the floor, right? You understand? Sometimes we, I'm talking about sound effects on a cell phone. I got sound effects behind me in my office. I think my wife walked in with their dog. Anyway, so... um, See, see, you're trying to mask the sound, but we can't. But the idea is, the picture, the thought process that we get is that nobody is perfect. There is no such thing as perfection except Jesus Christ. Now, just considering the fact that he was perfect still does not give him the authority to forgive you of your sins. He has no authority to forgive you of your sins, even in his perfection. Even in his perfect state, he does not have the authority to forgive you of his sins. What gave him the authority to forgive you of his sins is the fact that, by the way, and just so that you know, not willingly that he obediently, which was another act of his perfection, right? Another reflection of the fact that he was perfect. He willingly, or not not willingly, obediently went to the cross, he was crucified, and here's the moment that we know that he earned the right to forgive people of 
our, of their sins. And that is when God the Father judged him for all of your sin and for mine. He imputed all of those evils that we had done upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was killed. He was murdered, literally. And you know what? The Bible says he was resurrected three days later. Now you think about this. You think about that picture. That is what gave Jesus the authority to forgive people of sins. It is that same authority. It is that same exact authority to forgive people of sins that gives him the authority to open the scroll. Now, consider this for a minute. The picture that we get here, the third idiom used, is the one concerning the lamb, right? The picture that we get is somebody who is so badly beaten and so badly affected that he's unrecognizable. That's what it says here, right? And beheld low in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, right? In other words, a lamb that had been just torn up. It, it literally had been, uh, you know, uh, killed, bloody and everything, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. In other words, in his slain state, Jesus was recognized. Very likely when we see Jesus until maybe the earth is completely redeemed by being destroyed and rebuilt. We will actually witness, we will actually see a picture of the Messiah that is not recognizable as a man because of the scars that were upon him. By the way, Isaiah 53 would simply imply this to us. It's not implying, it's actually on its face. Isaiah 53 says he was not recognizable. He was not discernible as a human being. He was beat so, uh, you know, so badly beaten, right? So we get this picture, that's what gave him the authority and that's why he is looked at as the lamb, right? And at his description as the lamb of God is such a significant one, right? So as the lion, the king, right? The lion is a, is a beautiful description. The root of David, meaning the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to David concerning the king, right? Reinforcement of that picture. The everlasting Messiah is what the root of David would imply. It's talking about the Messiah that would come to, to bring redemption. And the lamb, that is the credential. That is the label that Christ wears to give him the authority to forgive you of sins. And actually that gave him the authority to open up the scroll. Pretty powerful when you think about it, guys. It gives you some real insight, right? It's so funny. Isn't it amazing how people read Revelation and go, man, I'm reading about seven horns and I'm reading about seven eyes and it just sounds so weird. All these weird creatures. I don't understand what it's saying in Revelation. It's actually pretty simple, isn't it? When you begin to draw the parallels from what the Old Testament teaches us and you learn about who Jesus Christ is, there's an identity that's being developed within us to understand who the Messiah is. We get that. It's very clear and it's very, very blatant and open when we look at it. And it says this, and it says, and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So in other words, he came and he, he literally grabbed the scroll and it is so beautiful to see that. He grabbed the scroll. That is the story, the, 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 the scroll that is about to tell the story of the remainder of the redemption of mankind, right? It's the scroll that literally puts a completion upon everything. It tells us about everything that's gonna take place. That is literally the story of the redemption of the earth. There's only one person who had the authority to take that and that is, of course, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Now, look what it says in verse 8. It says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. So it's the idea. We get the picture that when we pray to God, uh, we know that those prayers are received by him as very sweet. He loves the prayers. And, and I think that most people that are parents will understand this, right? They have children, they're charmed, and they're moved, and they're just touched emotionally when their children come 
come to them as little kids, right? They go, oh, daddy, you know, and it's so cute, right? But then when they get older, they're just as touched, if not significantly, more significantly touched, when they get old enough of an age where they start to shun you and they're embarrassed by you and so on and so forth. But when they come back to you and they start asking you for advice and counsel and wisdom, that even melts your heart even more, right? So think about it. When we're praying, the saints, the children of God, when we're praying to the Lord, can you imagine how well he receives that? How much he loves it to hear us seeking him and to hear us praying to him and to hear us seeking to have a conversation with him? He loves that type of thing. He, it, it's just a picture that we see. And it's just an important, sort of an important, an important description of how Jesus Christ looks at us and, and the relationship that's there. It says in verse 9, it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For why? Here's the credential. He's giving the reason. You guys catch this? They are giving the reason that Jesus was capable of holding the scroll and opening it. Grabbing the scroll and opening it. Here's the reason. Because, or for thou, was slain and and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. This is why he has earned the credential to do it. So he's not, they're not simply saying, oh, praise God that there's somebody who's capable of doing it. They're actually acknowledging the fact that they are aware of why he is capable of redeeming. Right? This is why, as your Bible teacher and as your pastor, I find it critically important to teach you to, so that you will understand why he's worthy. Because everybody shares these things and they share with the assumption that we already know and oftentimes the people that teach it don't even really know. It's critical to get into this. There, there's something that's critical for you to understand. You need to understand his credential because the people in heaven do. The saints that are in heaven understand it. The angels proclaiming who he is understand it. We should understand it too. And it's not difficult for us, for us to understand it, right? This is revealed to us. And you think about this, that what the Bible says. This is why God says you're going to be blessed by knowing this book. Right? By reading this book. That's a very important thing. And it's good that we know that, right? And, and here's the beautiful part. Because of what he's done, because of the fact that he redeemed us and the story of redemption comes forth, verse 10, it says it right here. He has made unto us, or has made us unto God kings, or unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. In other words, this is, this is literally our hope. That one day we're going to rule and reign with Christ on this earth and then we're going to get to experience a new heaven and a new earth. Think of it this way. People think about this and they go, oh, that's so boring and all we're going to do is get up there and just, oh, the whole day and that's so boring. And, and you know, it's funny too. I think sometimes people pretend that singing worship songs all day is a lot of fun, you know? Sometimes it's not so fun. You know what I mean? I mean, don't forgive me. I'm a musician, okay? I'm a, I play every instrument that you see on stage. I play guitar. I play drums. I play bass. I play keyboards. I play some string instruments. I mean, I play this all kinds. I play all, I play them all. Music can get boring sometimes. You can only listen to it too much, so much. You can only sing so much. There's a certain point in time where you're at a worship. Fine, you could get, you could get mad at me for saying, I'm going to say it and I don't care. You, you, you could call me a hypocrite or you could say I'm not a really spiritual man or whatever. There are times where I'm at a worship, uh, you know what they call worship concerts. I, I really don't like going to those things, you know. But you go and you sit down and, and there's like 15 worship songs. By the time I get to like number six, I'm tired. I'm falling asleep. They're, Sebastian, Lord, oh, my soul. I'm asleep. And I'm not trying to be offensive, and I'm not trying to, you know, and we know that God inhabits the praises of his people or whatever, but I can't imagine myself singing 1,400 songs for eternity. 
Now, don't get me wrong. We're always going to have a song on our heart for the Lord. But the pe- people misappropriate this, this picture of heaven all the time. Here's the, here's the way I would say. Think of the thing that you do on this earth that brings you the greatest pleasure. You think of whatever it is. Okay? Don't think about it too, too much for some of you people, right? But whatever it is, think about the things on this earth that bring you the greatest pleasure. What brings you the greatest pleasure here on earth is like what brings you pain in heaven. In other words, what you're going to experience in heaven is a million times better than the greatest thing you're going to experience on this earth. So, you go, well, it's going to be boring. No, it's not. No, I'm not going to like, oh, no, yes, you are. And it's going to be so wonderful that your natural response is going to be to have a song on your mind and on your heart. You ever had that happen to you? You go through the whole day. See, I can't go, like I told you, I can't go to a worship concert. By the time I get to number six or seven, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm like, whatever, you know? And I sure as heck don't like the idea that I got to pay $70 to go into, to hear guys. I never mind. I'm not even, I'm just going to get on my soapbox. Forget it. I'm not even going to start on that mess, right? But that doesn't mean I don't have a song in my heart the whole day, right? There are times where I see the wonders of God and there's a natural song that's on my heart. I think one of the best examples of this is my wife. My wife, is, sometimes she does it so much, it kind of irritates me at times. I'm like, why are you so happy right now? I'm mad. Let me be miserable. You be miserable, you know? But all day, she's got this, you know, she's just singing a song. And it's just random. And then, and then there's times where I'm hanging out with her the whole day. I'm like, baby, don't sing that out loud anymore. It's going to be stuck in my head all day. You know, I got it. You know, she's, she's loving God and she's thanking God for something. And strangely she has a song in her heart because she thanks god for me i don't get that idea but anyway you know she's constantly singing about the lord and singing the song because there's a song on her heart why because she's seeing the goodness of god in the things that are around her and it can't help she can't help but to put herself in that place that's what's going on these people are seeing the direct result of their salvation they're seeing the direct result of the redemption of mankind and the the story of the redemption of the earth and it's forcing them to come to a place literally within their heart they're just compelled to do it where they're just saying hey worthy is a lamb right it's not like it's something that they're just doing like a bunch of broken records this isn't like you know these guys that are hanging out in the catacombs going all that mess this is this is a genuine real much by the way some of the most beautiful music i've ever heard in my life has been some of these singers in the vatican like i I, if you guys we we probably in two years from now when we after this tour we'll probably i was telling somebody we're we're very likely going to go to uh we'll probably start we'll do another tour we'll probably start in italy is my guess so we'll go to rome then we'll go from rome to egypt from egypt to israel then from israel to jordan then back to israel we'll go to petra it'll be a big tour it'll be like a three-weeker uh so we'll, we'll tell you once we put it on the on the maps but if you have that opportunity and you go to the Vatican, yes, the Catholic Church and the Beast and all this other weird stuff, people. But you know, I got to tell you, you go over there, there are some singers over there like, no, like, oh my goodness, man. Some of the most beautiful sounds you will ever hear a human being make come from some of these Jesuit priests that are just standing there and singing in Latin and some of the most beautiful music you'll ever hear. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about, right? So I'm not, I'm not putting that down and I certainly don't want this to be taken as me being disrespectful to people who sing those beautiful songs. I'm certainly... I I have no, uh, nothing against those types of things. Matter of fact, for those of you that are going to Israel with us um, uh, this year, wait till we go to St. Anne's Church or we go to, to uh, the church that's at the pool of uh, uh, Bethesda. Uh, you, you're you're going to be blown away when you go over there and you hear the music that's being sung by some of these priests. It's just, it's just going to blow your mind. It's like, oh my gosh, it's, you sound like an instrument. 
you sound so beautiful, right? But, but the picture is, is that there's something within their heart that motivates that music, right? That's what we're talking about here in heaven. That's the thing that we're, that we're reading. They're, they're exciting because of that. And it said this, it says, and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angel, angels round about the throne and the beast, we don't know how many angels, you know, um, uh, completely. There's, we have an idea because John's about to give it to us, right? And the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands. So 10,000 times, that's literally, if you want to do that, the literal number, 10,000 times 10,000 is what? 100 million, right? So we're talking about a significant number here. We're not talking about a, a, a small number. This is a significant number, right? It's, a, it's an extreme number. And these are all people that, it's just a beautiful, think about this, a beautiful concert of just people singing out to the Lord. And that, that must be an amazing sight, an amazing sight. Notice this. They're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor. Notice this, notice the key word. I want you to focus on one word and glory and blessing. He should be glorified, right? He should be glorified. There are a lot of people. And I mean a lot of people, not just one small people group. I'm talking about there are a lot of people who claim to worship God. They claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They claim to know the true and living God and they they claim to believe the truth. And the problem is, is they do not treat Christ with the glory that he deserves. They rob Christ of his glory. And when you hear somebody that actually puts down the role or the position or the, the glory that Christ deserves, you know you're dealing with somebody with a cultic background or an incorrect biblical background. And I say this, I continue to say this all the time. You talk about that. I was talking to somebody the other day. They say, well, I'm a Mormon. I'm your brother. No, you're not. You might, be, you might be my brother in the sense that you know, you're part of mankind, you're part of humankind, but you do not worship the same God that I worship. I constantly, when we go, on, on the, uh, we go down the street over here, when we're, when we're doing the, the first Friday, I'm constantly talking to people from, uh, uh, that are from the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, they're from the Watchtower, and they come to me all the time. They say, I am your brother in the Lord. I worship the same God. No, you don't. You worship a false God. You worship a God that is satanically inspired. And they always get upset at me. You know, well, why? Why do you say that? It's the way you treat Jesus. It's how you view Jesus. You rob Christ of his glory. You do not put Christ in the position that he belongs. You do not treat him as God. They say all kinds of crazy things about Jesus, none of which are true. You got you got people groups that I'm that I've been talking about that puts Jesus at the same level as an as an archangel. I mean, think about that for a second. You know, and it's it's interesting. I think of I think of the, the beliefs that come from the Mormons and, and Joseph Smith, who actually says, Hey, I received this insight from God and it was a new gospel and it came from an angel. Well, I look at what the Apostle Paul says, he says, Even if an angel appears to you and gives you a gospel that is different from the one we've taught you, let him be damned. Now, that's the Bible saying that. That's not me. That's the word of God. That's what Christ says. That's what the Lord, the representation. So I always am very critical to think, how is Christ treated? Notice here, it's not just something that they throw in to sound good. It's not like, well, he deserves honor and power and glory because glory sounds, no, no. Glory is a very important word. 
He's glorified. He's put in a place of prominence. And when you do not put him in a place of prominence, you are not worshiping the same God that I worship. You just don't. You, you're not. I was watching a video the other day of, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the Nation of Islam uh, leader, Louis Farrakhan. And there's people uh, throwing around a little video right now. Uh, Farrakhan got saved, you know? And it's a picture of him recently speaking at a church where he's actually using Christian terminology. And he's speaking Christian truth, supposedly. No, he's not. No, he's not. He, he says he's glorifying Jesus Christ, but he still believes in the same lies. And you can see it. Because the Christ that he's describing is not the Christ that the Bible describes. The glory that he is receiving is glory that belongs to the true and living God, Jesus Christ. Sorry. You're doing what the Quran tells you to do. You're being a liar and deceiver like your God, Allah, is. That's what you're doing, right? It even says it in the Quran. Allah is what? The chief of deceivers. You're being that deceiver, being a liar, right? It always goes back to who Jesus Christ is. If you're ever worried about somebody where somebody stands, that kind of a thing, spend a lot of time with them on Jesus. Describe Jesus to me and ask him 15 different questions, 15 different ways about the same issue. Where does Jesus stand? And if they tell you anything other than what the Bible says concerning Jesus, let him be accursed. What they're saying is wrong, right? Now, I'm not telling you that you look at a someone who says, has a different perspective on Jesus and go, go to hell, you know. I'm not telling you to do that, right? But what I'm saying is what they're saying is enough to, it's, it's damnable heresy, right? It's, we have to have the love of Jesus. We've got to reach out to people. Someone, if someone has a, 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 you know, a wrong belief concerning these things, we need to reach out to them. I, I do this all the time. I, I have these discussions with, with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, and it always breaks my heart because they're among some of the most brainwashed group because there's people that hustle them. They're, they're organizations that oversee them. They are professional hustlers. They lie and cheat and steal to convince people of what they think is true to the point where they don't even allow them to get blood transfusions. Who cares if you die? If you get a blood transfusion, you're going to hell. Really? Uh, what? The Bible says we receive the blood transfusion, the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm not trying to take it and stretch the, the picture, but what are you doing, right? And, and I sit down with them and I'm trying to tell them again and again and again and they just don't want to believe it because they're so hustled in the thinking that if they go in this direction, it's, just, it's, it's so sad. It's so sad. We need to look. We need to look distinctly at who Jesus Christ is and we need to give him the glory. We need to be careful to not steal that glory from him, right? We don't ever want to rob God of the glory that he deserves, right? I don't want to be that person. I hope you don't either because if you do, there's great consequences to it, right? And it says in verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, under the earth meaning those that have died, right? And such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard, I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, amen. And the four and 20 elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. This is so interesting because this is not the only area in the Bible where it actually implies or not implies as outright says that every knee will, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess you can look in in isaiah 43 it, it makes reference to that in psalms you'll hear that right you can go all throughout the bible and there is account after account after account after account after account of people that will eventually have to answer to the lord paul talks about this in romans talking about everybody having to bow down and confess who jesus is how about this how about philippians chapter 2 right every knee will bow and every tongue will confess right 
Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see it everywhere. And we know, here's the, here's the, the moral of the story. Here's the message, right? And John is making this very clear to us. You can actually proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord now, or you could do it later. Now, if you do it now, you will do it later as you receive salvation. Because you've already received it as you enter into the kingdom. Or you could not do it now and be forced to do it later when you hear the words, go to hell. I never knew you. It's your choice. You're going to do it. And I tell you, it's not a funny thing. To me, it's not. To me, I think about that. I think it's an ugly, brutal picture. Because when people hear the words, go to hell, I never knew you, right? I've had a lot of people tell me to go to hell throughout the years, right? But when you hear the words, go to hell from God, guess where you're going? You're going there and there is no change. It never, ever, ever, it's forever, it's permanent. It's permanent. It's heavy. It's a big deal. It's sad. So the question that we must constantly be asking ourselves is, what kind of place of prominence does God have in my life, right? What glory am I giving him now? I better do it now because I don't want to wait to do it later because if I, if I don't do it now and I wait to do it later, when I do it later, it's going to be too late, right? You're not guaranteed another day on this earth. You're not guaranteed another moment. And if you're a believer and you say, yes, I know Jesus Christ and I love him and I'm with him, but I make all these mistakes and I stumble, no problem. You go to the Lord and you ask him for help. But the picture that you must understand is to learn to put Jesus Christ in his proper place. I do think that it is significant And I do think that it is purposefully placed here in a calculated manner, this account that we read in chapter 5. Because what it does is it sets the precedent for us to understand the authority by which God is able to tell us about the future and to actually redeem us in the description that he gives us. In other words, all the things we're about to read about is done with a certain authority. And that's the authority that's given to the Lord because of what he did for us on the cross. That's heavy, you guys. Here's the bottom line. Your salvation, my salvation is free to us, but not free to Christ. It wasn't cheap. Maybe free to you, but it wasn't cheap, right? It was significant. It was the costly, the costliest gift ever given in the history of mankind. And it's the one that ironically happens to be available to all of mankind. That's the story of redemption. See, when you read through the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation to me, and people think, well, you're weird or whatever. Yes, it's prophetic and it's prophecy and it's all that. The book of Revelation to me, people, uh, I've heard this, I've heard people say this, they open up the Song of Solomon and I've got good friends that entitled their series to the Song of Solomon really crazy, you know. I I think it's crazy. Matter of fact, I tease them about it, you know. They they, they give weird, oh yeah, let's talk about loving, baby. And I mean, just weird song. that they, They call the Song of Solomon the story of love. It's a love story. You know what? I don't believe that for, look, you know what I think is the ultimate love story that's written here? And I think the ultimate love story is the story of redemption of mankind given to us in the book of Revelation. You read the book of Revelation, you're reading, yes, it's a prophetic book, but it's truly a love story. It's truly the story of the redemption of mankind and what we're about to face and what we're about to see. That is the reason that we have to say to God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And this is good stuff, Lord, as we just continue to examine the words of the book of Revelation, Lord, that we see that you revealing yourself to us, that we're learning of you, that we're knowing you, that we're understanding you, that we're developing insight concerning your your love for us and who you are. And we thank you for that, Lord. Keep us looking to you, Lord. Keep us seeking you, Lord. We love you, God, and we thank you. Go before us now, Lord. Fill us with your spirit that we may be people, Lord, who, who always turn towards you, Lord, loving you, Lord, and walking with you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.